welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. Today, I am delighted to welcome Chris Birchall, who was until recently MD of Arriva UK Trains. Chris joined me a couple of days after leaving his role and before he takes up his new position as MD of UK Distribution for SSE. Chris has had a stellar career in rail so far and has built a strong reputation for his knowledge of the industry, but also for being a thoroughly decent chap. He shares with us his story so far, his views on what the future holds for rail, and uh, a couple of anecdotes about his own career as he's gone along his journey. I hope you enjoy. Good morning and welcome to Chris Birchall. I'm absolutely delighted that you have uh, you've agreed to take part in the Intuitive Insights podcast, Chris. Welcome this morning. And um, I would normally start with asking about your current role, but at the moment um, you're kind of just leaving one, recently left your role with Arriva as head of UK Trains and uh, moving into a new role in a different sector. So give us the headlines on that, if you would. Um, but then I'm also really keen to hear your story. I'd like to hear how you got into rail in the first place and uh, your career to date. So over to you. Yeah, great. Well, good morning. Yeah, great to see you, Nina. And thanks for inviting me on uh, today to, to talk. Um, as you say, I've, I've recently um, finished my role as the Ariba UK Trains MD. Very, very recently finished it. Um, uh, where I was responsible for, for all of Arriva's rail businesses and rail interests in the UK. And I'm not sure if everyone knows, but Arriva's got, obviously, a, a reputation for running rail businesses and train companies, you know, cross-country, Chiltern, the Overground, Grand Central. Um, but also, we, Arriva has uh, a, a big maintenance and overhaul business called Arriva Train Care. We run road transport alternative solutions as well within the UK Trains division. So it's a very busy division uh, with a number of different businesses and actually very different commercial models as well so it had what was franchises now obviously in, in different arrangements uh, with department for transport but it's also got um, agreements with other clients like transport for london to run the overground uh, and grand central is a fully commercial model and the reva train care is a fully commercial model so it's it's quite a varied division it's quite a varied business and it was a very very varied role which i enjoyed greatly i did it for six years uh, only finished uh, very recently um, and are now uh, in that funny, you know, when you said people say I'm in between jobs, that's normally means something else, doesn't it? But um, I am in between jobs, uh, literally. So uh, looking forward to starting an, a new uh, role with um, SSE uh, in energy and uh, I'll be the managing director of their distribution networks. So looking after all their assets, trying to keep the lights on for people in Scotland and in the south and uh, no doubt uh, getting shouted at if I don't. <laughs> Something new to be shouted at for. <laughs> well, I think you know. I think there are many, many similarities. Um, I'm expecting uh, there'll be lots of differences, of course, but I think there will be lots of similarities uh, between energy distribution and the railway. They're both networks businesses. They've both got consumers. They've both got lots of politics. They've both got regulators. There's a lot of safety uh, aspects to both both businesses, of course. Uh, distributed workforces, trade unions, all of those sort of things are quite quite similar I think um, uh, you know and, and sort of businesses that have been privatized were previously nationalized um, culturally therefore some similar challenges I expect I'm sure there'll be masses of differences as well but um, I don't think it will all be completely alien and I think there's a number of people that have 
have moved over actually. So um, uh, Nicola Shaw, of course, uh, now heads up the national grid and, and used to be in public transport. Uh, Joanna Whittington, who came from energy, came to the rail regulator, is now back in energy, uh, working for the for the government in Bayes. So, um, you know, I think people do make these transitions. Heidi Mottram managed to make the transition from rail to water. So I'm hoping I will, if I can be anything like as successful as Heidi and Nicola in their transitions, then I'll be happy. We shall look forward to seeing that, Chris, I'm sure. We'll, we'll all be keeping our eye on you and seeing what you're up to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in terms of going, so so that's kind of where you're at now. Yeah, yeah. I'm really interested to know why rail in the first place. This this always fascinates me. How did how did you get into the rail industry in the first place? What was the attraction? Yeah, so um, I think it was more rail chose me actually, which is a bit weird. I mean, it, it's it's funny because. Um, uh, after university, I've got a French degree, so there's, it's completely random for, for, for the railway, really. It's yeah. random for energy as well, actually, but it's, 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 it's a little bit random. Um, and so after university, I was kind of just you know, open-minded as to what I would do. Uh, what I was looking for was a structured graduate training scheme that would give me a nice, soft, gentle introduction into work and understanding what work and business was all about. And uh, so I, I applied for, for, for everything. Uh, I mean, literally everything from sort of the police uh, through to Procter and Gamble to Guinness. That was the one I really wanted. Uh, <laughs> uh, railways, uh, De La Rue, who make banknotes and yeah. things. You know, so I, I applied to all, every graduate scheme I could possibly see and think of. Um, and uh, so I applied to RailTrack and the RailTrack graduate scheme was excellent at the time. It was, uh, you know, it was because it was so soon after privatization it, it looked and felt very much like the br management scheme uh, the very celebrated br management scheme yeah. and so they retained all the best bits of that i think uh, and it looked really good um and i was really pleased to be successful in getting that so uh you know the the, the honest answer which is not an answer i always give but the honest answer is uh, railtrack were the first business to send me through an offer letter Right. Uh, and I thought this is a great scheme it looks like a great business let's get into railways and I did that I was pleased I did I you know my first pay packet arrived within I think about 14 pounds of my complete overdraft facility and <laughs> loans and everything else <laughs> um, so it was uh, it was great timing uh, for me yeah uh, and I haven't really looked back and uh, and uh, you know I loved it it, it was it's, it's so I started with them general management scheme uh, in rail track uh, which was broadly sort of operations and production. Um, uh, it's funny that they asked you where would you want to be allocated locationally, uh, and it was of course a national thing. And, and they said, you know, everyone puts London down, um, and if you don't want London, then you people either go for Manchester or, or York or whatever. And I saw that Swindon was there, and I thought, well, Swindon's not far from London, is it? So maybe I'll put Swindon down as my second choice. Um, and uh, they laughed at me, and they said, no one ever puts Swindon. Down. <laughs> So the fact that you expressed anything <laughs> towards Swindon meant that you're going to be put into Swindon. Uh, so I was I was allocated to the Great Western Zone as it was then, um, and uh, as general management, learned operations, spent time in web housing, crew, learning signalling and all of that, and learning bell codes and stuff. Uh, there was a cohort of about ten of us. It was fantastic. We had a great time. We learned everything. We 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 learned all aspects of the business. Um, 
the Great Western Zone was a great place to be. Swindon was fantastic, you know, and Great Western is a great, great region and it's a good place to learn. I had some great mentors there and some great people to learn from, people like Andrew McNaughton, mm. uh, the late Derek Holmes, sadly, of course, um, but he was my production director at some point. Um, so I learned an awful lot. Uh, Peter Leppard, another one uh, from Great Western, really great, great leaders. Uh, and I was allowed to focus on operations. I spent six weeks down in Cornwall learning how to signal trains brilliant um and it gave you such a good grounding <clears throat> mm. uh, a really good grounding in 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 actually what it is to do the work of rail um so what it is to be out in a possession what it is to, to 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 do the operational checks what it is to respond to incidents all of that stuff and that equipped me then to to move from sort of the far west into the to the eastern side of the zone and and, and i moved to um support the heathrow express implementation team can you believe that wow okay uh, so this was when uh, the tunnels at Heathrow wasn't even open. Uh, so they were just running. They had a temporary station. I don't know if you remember. They had a little temporary station and the train would run to Hazen Harlington, turn the corner and sort of stop at the temporary station. People would get onto buses to go to Heathrow. Right. Um, but it's just to get the operation up and running. And uh, I was I was asked to sort of you know support that effort as a kind of fresh graduate that's kind of got a basic understanding of operations. Um and I was allocated to the Hayes and Harlington mobile operations managers team, which was a brilliant, I mean, lovely, lovely people. And I learned so much from them and had such a great laugh with them as well. Um, uh, and, and they sort of put me under their wing. Uh, they described me as the fast action response team for Heathrow. It was only later I realised what the acronym meant. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but slow on the uptake, you know, I, I, I do a bit of banter, but not, but you know, that's, uh, that's fine. Um, and then you know that was successful and then i moved up through the ranks quite quickly uh, in operations did performance management uh, getting into all the systems and processes performance improvement safety management operations management and then became the production manager for for the thames valley area really quite quickly um uh great 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 team you know great signal boxes great frontline teams um we we sadly suffered uh the tragedy in, in 1999 of labrick grove mm. I was the area operations manager at the time and oh my goodness, you know, that, that changes everything. That changes your life that, you know, that obviously that's horrific for, for the, for the people, obviously the families involved uh, and the staff involved. And actually I learned a lot as a young manager, having to manage the trauma and the effect that that has on teams, um, yeah. you know, not just in the moment and in the event and in the week after, but, but, you know, months and months afterwards, you know, that really does affect people. The rel Railways are very close family and, um, you know, when accidents, horrific accidents like that happen, particularly where there's loss of life, it really does affect everybody very, very deeply. And uh, that was challenging, really challenging, leading people through that time, yeah. going through the public inquiries. Um, and you grow up, you grow up very quickly, I think. Yeah. Um, but then I left, I left Railtrack uh, uh, in 2001 uh, and went to the Foreign Office, which is where my French degree comes in, you see. That was all right. Lovely. Okay. What I what I thought I would I would do is uh, become a diplomat and um, uh, you know go and sit by pools and help people with consulates and things like that. Uh, but the, the foreign office didn't work out completely. I was there for eighteen months um, and then uh, I came back to rail, uh, but this time on the passenger side um, uh, on with Thames Trains. Uh, lovely little business running the passenger services, the commuter services out of Paddington, um, sort of down to Newbury, Reading, up to Oxford and Cotswolds and so on. Uh, I was operations director there, um, but didn't last very long because uh, in those days, I was telling someone this the other day, in those days, uh, owning groups could make 
unsolicited bids for other other networks. So you know, this the terms wasn't necessarily put out to tender, I don't think. But I think first group sort of submitted a bid to say if we were to take it over, this is what we could do, um, and uh, that was that was accepted. Uh, so first eventually swallowed up Thames Trains, yeah. uh, but before I could be transferred, uh, my boss sort of picked me up and dropped me into South Central as the operations director, which was a much bigger business with many bigger challenges. Um, uh, more trains. Uh, this is the time when new, all the new trains, the Electrostars, were being introduced. Um, there wasn't enough space to store the old trains and the new trains to maintain the new trains. The new trains were like rocket science compared to sort of you know, the old trains in terms of uh, the assets and what you needed to do to them. We didn't have enough drivers. You know, it was just you know problem after problem uh, in terms of managing this. And uh, so dropping into that as operations director, working for Charles Horton as the MD. What an experience that was. Um, we got on top of that. Uh, and then, uh, so two years later, uh, when Govier won the Southeastern franchise, uh, Keith Ludeman asked me to run the Southern business as MD. Um, it was funny, there was a story that Keith took me up to the fifth office in Go Ahead House in Croydon um, after we won the, the, the Southeastern franchise. Uh, and, and I kind of thought Charles was going to go over to Southeastern uh, to run it. And I, I was fully expecting Keith to say to me, uh, we'd like you to go and be the operations director and do what you did in Southern over in Southeastern. That's exactly what I was expecting. So I'd already got my speech ready. He's going to go, well, I've kind of done that, Keith. I'm not sure I want to do it again. Um, uh, and he didn't. He said, uh, I'd like you to, to step up and be the MD of Southern. Right. And I remember, I do remember exactly what I was, I was really stunned. I wasn't expecting it at all. I said, well, Keith, I don't really know what to say. Um, and he went, well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, you idiot? You say yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I did. Uh, and, uh, and then sort of saw Southern through the rest of that franchise, won the new franchise, saw it through that franchise, bid then for, you know, have supported the Govier bid for TSGN, the Thameslink, in the big GTR franchise as it is now. Um, uh, and then moved to Arriva in, uh, in 2014. Uh, to run a portfolio of businesses, uh, so multiple businesses, um, multiple talks, different different level, different strategy, different requirement, uh, but also fantastic experience. Ariba's a great culture; it's got a great team. Really, really thoroughly enjoyed my time there. Um, getting the business to work better together, uh, engaging, uh, changing, innovating. Really, really positive. And clearly, there were some challenges in Northern. Um, that Ariva, uh, that we all we all had to navigate through, and that was a very very difficult period. But um, you know, th th there's reasons for that, you know, and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot you know, circumstance involved in the Northern story, which is for another day, perhaps. But um, outside of that, you know, the Ariva team is fantastic and delivers some great services, and uh, it's a really good business. Fantastic! I love that story. I love it. I, I just, um, you know, I'm. I'm really privileged because I get to speak to so many people about their careers what they've done and how they've got to where they are um, and I and I, I really am so interested in, in hearing about it and you can see kind of from starting at rail track having experience of different areas um, and then yes kind of popping out for a bit to the foreign office but then coming back to do the other side of rail so you've got experience of the both which I think um, the people who can relate to whether you, you're doing the passenger side whether you're doing the infrastructure side being able to appreciate the view from both is really key and I think becoming even more important actually as we as we move forward. And people do say don't they Nina that that 
one of the downsides of the last 20 years is that fragmentation and the fact that people only experience one part of the railway yeah. and it's something that I, 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 I've banged on about for a long long time now is around we have to look at the railway as a system and the system has different bits of it and different parts of it but if you don't look and think about the railway as a system you're going to make some pretty perverse decisions yeah. and some of the problems that we've faced and are facing now in, in in uk rail are around the fact that we haven't looked at something as a system mm. and i think you do need to understand how the other part works how asset management works how networks work how the full operations work and on that you know if you're sitting in that side of, of, of the environment you do need to understand how train crew work and how allocations work and rostering and diagramming and all of that. And if you don't understand all of it, or at least have an appreciation of all of it, then you start to think that people are being obstructive or difficult or don't understand how important your bit is. Yeah. And of course, that's never the case. People are always, always, it's not something I always say, they act rationally against the incentives that they're given. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's, you, know, you can create a lot of friction and a lot of wasted time and effort because people don't understand the system. Yes, you know, you know. Yeah. I completely agree. One of the things that has come out, I think, of this, of this recent experience that we've had and are still having with the COVID response and the, the, kind of the, the management of that crisis by the industry, there's so many people saying to me at the moment that the, the best thing to come out of it so far has been the increased amount of collaboration not just between passenger and infrastructure so not just the tox and network rail but also the dft in that mm -hmm. um and i'm sure you know some would look at that more favorably than others but there has been an increase in collaboration but also i'm told from the trade union perspective as well so all parties all stakeholders um working together to to kind of to, to do that one system thinking without yeah. even really on purpose it was just what needed to happen it's funny you know because you're absolutely right and and collaboration is one of the the, the, the big hallmarks really of, of 2020 despite the horror that we've all had to suffer um and it has happened across the system it has happened because um you know it's it's very simple and easy to just take your perspective on things when you're working um but in a crisis the railway does always step up and you can't always rely on that to happen but it always does and it is astonishing how well people come together to manage and handle that and you're right you know authorities like the dft and other clients have stepped up and understood their role um but i think infrastructure operations and operators and our people and our unions it's been exceptional actually and it's almost been working around the existing structures to do that so you know I, I i was heavily involved um working with all the general secretaries um, of the trade unions through the pandemic through something that we called the, the rail industry coronavirus forum right. uh, RISIF for short um <laughs> and and you know it was it was right at the beginning when none of us really knew what this pandemic was going to be about mm. um it was quite challenging to kind of say actually it, it could make sense for us to kind of just talk and work things through and have common ways of dealing with things you know this is this is even before um people were recognizing that face masks were an important aspect of control of the virus you know we just didn't really know the role that face masks would play so that we had lengthy debates 
<laughs> face coverings, face masks, what grade of mask, you know, what, what do you do? What's the right thing to do in terms of NHS supplies versus railway supplies? And how do you keep people safe? How do you keep in work environment safe? How do we keep working and keep the railway running? And I have to say, you know, the, the general secretaries were excellent. Um, and I think the industry was excellent in terms of just this is a real this is a real human thing that we have to deal with here. And we've got an economic responsibility and we've got a safety responsibility to our people and to our, our and to our customers. And there's a whole bunch of key workers that we've got to keep getting to hospitals and, and, and to their locations. Um, and we found a way to do it. that yeah. wasn't overly emotional. That wasn't, you know, too difficult. That wasn't overly commercial. We, we just found a way to do it. And um, that way of working is what, what we're going to need more of going forward yeah. and I think a number of people are saying you know that did seem to work really well so how do we bottle that and then take that forward to the next challenge it's a bit like it's a bit like after the Olympics and everyone went that was amazing how did we do that how do we keep doing that you know yeah. and there was very, very much a focal point on the Olympics wasn't there because it was three weeks of games and then the Paralympics and and it was a real goal for people they could focus on. this is a little bit different because no one really knows how long it's going to go on for we kind of thought it might be over by now getting <laughs> yeah. in march april we kind of thought oh it'd be done by by the end of the year wouldn't it um and it clearly isn't and and but i think the learning that we've got around how we can work how we can collaborate how we can deal with really tough stuff but not fall out mm. is, is what we've got to keep going because uh, you know there is a lot of challenge to come for the railway um and we're going to need that kind of behavior to, to persist yeah absolutely agree there are definitely challenges ahead i think that the the i completely agree with you chris i think the response from the industry has been amazing at every level um and yes there will be challenges but there will also be opportunities and so I'm really keen to, to, to know what you think are the opportunities for the industry moving forward. And um, I'm, going to, I'm going to grant you three wishes um, in, my, in my fairy godmother-esque mode um, and say to you, so what, what do you think are the opportunities for us? Yeah. If there were three things, if you could only have three things that we would change to move towards this new normal, whatever that will look like, what would those three wishes be? Mm, okay, so um, let's just talk about the opportunities first, and then I'll, I'll sort of come back to you on, on, on those those specifics because that gives me thinking time, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, look, I, I mean, clearly we're, we're at a bit of a crossroads, and there uh, and the pandemic does put into real heightened focus um, two things really. I think the affordability model for rail and how you 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 fund it and then the sustainability model for rail um, so we all know the benefits of rail rail is a fantastic driver of economic growth it's a fantastic driver of social inclusion it brings communities closer together it brings workplaces closer together it connects you for leisure it connects you know all this economic activity and social activity so the fundamental value of rail remains that the question is, how do we do that in an affordable way if we haven't got as many people traveling or if people's work patterns have changed um, uh, and, and so on? So I think the first thing for me is let's not do anything now that fundamentally undermines the long term role that, role that rail can play. So, you know, we might be tempted, you know, 
it's costing everything's costing the treasury an absolute fortune rail is one of those things that's costing the treasury an absolute fortune the temptation will be let's do some quick cuts let's do something you know that really reduces the cost of the railway quickly we know don't we that putting stuff back in rail takes a long long time mm. um, and sometimes it never goes back so i think we have to we have to have that long-term mindset as painful as that might be we have to have a long-term mindset then I think we've got to tailor the railway to the reality that we're now facing. And that's where some of the opportunities come in. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was, uh, I, I remember the, the, we were in Southern at the time, and I think I was the ops director. Uh, so it was right, really early on in my Southern experience. And we, we had some, some major crisis was going on. I can't remember the specifics of the crisis. And Vince Lucas was the commercial director. Um, and Vince was in the office next door to me and he popped his head round. And he said, look, you know, the thing is, you, you've got to have a mental model with, with, with problems like this, because in every single crisis, you've always got to find the opportunity because there always will be, no matter how bad it is, there will always be an opportunity in there. And I thought, oh, you know, as the operator, how can you think like that? It's just ridiculous. It's such a disaster. What, you know? uh, and then I stopped and thought, actually, he's really right. If you focus on, OK, it is a disaster. Let me just get my head around it. But now let's focus on what we can do and what we can achieve. Then, then actually, it's a much more positive mindset. But you get more done and you will, you will seize the opportunity that exists. So I think the, the wishes I would have around the opportunities that I can see, the first would be, to make sure that in whatever changes we make and whatever evolution we have in rail, it's so important to involve and engage those that are closest to delivery. Okay. Now, um, by that, I mean uh, a range of things. That could mean people could interpret that as devolution. So local authorities should have more of a say about the services that they have in their area, which I think is right. Okay. Um, but it also means that our people could have more of a say it also means uh, that operators that are closest to customers who understand the local markets really need to be shaping and helping because i think there will be a temptation to to centralize everything um, and to have a single way of doing things which you know th there are many cases where that's a good thing to do so if you take ticketing for example we don't want 20 different smart cards and systems and back offices and all that sort of stuff so actually having a single way of doing some of that stuff that applies to everybody makes some sense but most of rail is local so it's a national product but it is locally tailored and locally delivered um, and customers are different depending on the network so make sure we have to make sure it's a really key wish that we have that voice and that understanding in whatever design of solution we have if it becomes too generic too national, too one way, then I think we will lose the quality and the value of rail at a local level. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would wish for is, uh, and this might seem a bit odd actually, and maybe a bit technical, but um, the second wish I would have is that we have to collectively recognize the role and the critical importance that specification has in driving all of the outcomes that we have. So let me explain what I mean by that. We're likely to have new commercial arrangements. We're likely to have some new structures. Don't know what it looks like yet. Um, and we're all working on, on what, what that could be. But what is fundamental in every single situation, whether it's a nationalized industry, privatized industry, franchise, concession, whatever, the specification of what you want and how that is put into contract drives everything. And if that specification is unrealistic, unachievable, 
unfinanceable, then don't be surprised if things fail. And, and I say this because of a reflection on some of the areas in franchising. Um, a lot of that ties back to were those specifications too ambitious? The contract reflects the specification and they reflect the bid that people put in, of course. Um, but that specification has to be right. And um, you know, just when we say concessions versus franchises, you know, as a topic of debate at the moment, a concession is a commercial model. But if you don't specify it properly, then you'll get a silly outcome. Yeah. And if you over-specify it or you over-control it or you under-control it, you'll get the wrong outcome. Mm. So, so, so clients need to really understand what they're asking for and why they're asking for it and what they need to have in place to make it work. And then the supply chain and the contractors and the operators and, and the infrastructure parties, if there are those as well, can then respond appropriately. Mm. Um, so that is really, really important. We have to get that bit absolutely right. And then I think the third thing and the obvious thing for me is uh, what an opportunity we now have to really accelerate innovation and modernization for our, for our network, for customers. Um, it, it, yeah, there's this thing, you know, in crisis, you know, innovation and transformation is always accelerated, isn't it? And people say in war, you always get the most technological advances because people have to, you know, have to modernize quickly. I'm not suggesting we're in a war, wartime situation, um, but we are in a situation where there's a massive opportunity now to really grasp the nettle of modernizing some key things. Our fare system is so horrifically complicated and no one understands it except, you know, a couple of really clever people in, in, in some talks. Um, why not simplify all of that? You know, if we've got a challenge to regrow revenue and to encourage people back, one of the things that gets in the way is that the people are worried about fares and how accurate and cheap, how cheap their fares. If they've got the best deal, you know, can I do better? What if I travel earlier, later, whatever? Um, we just have to make that easier, remove the barriers, remove the friction for people accessing our product and accessing our network. So sorting out the fare system, sorting out ticketing, modernizing. Uh, the way we interact and interface with our customers so that they, it has a modern experience. Um, that doesn't ever mean, and I, I always consistently say this, it doesn't mean de-staffing the railway, but it does mean using our people to better effect yeah. and using them in a way that customers really need them to be used now. Yeah. Um, I think if we try and preserve the old railway, you know, in the old way of doing things with old ticketing, old fares, we will not adapt quickly enough for the new challenge that we've got. And it's quite clear the customer challenge in the future will be quite different. Customers want different things. They're going to use the railway differently, probably. Um, so we should be adapting to that and making the most of it. That's the opportunity. That's the Vince Lucas opportunity. Grab that and we'll recover revenue quicker. If we fail to do that, then we'll be losing money. Or, or, yeah, we wouldn't necessarily see it. We'll be left on the table somewhere. Yeah, absolutely agree. Could not agree more. I think that this um, this whole experience that we've that we're going through as an industry, as a as a nation globally, we would not have wanted that. We would never have chosen to have gone through this. No. But the, for for me, the opportunity is. Well, but we're we're there now, and um and and I've shared this with lots of people. So the people listening to this will be thinking, oh, here she goes again with her eggs. But there's there's this um somebody shared with me years and years ago in the context of change management. You can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. And I think as, a, as an industry, my take on it, having been, you know, just, just past my eight year anniversary, so I'm still very much the new girl. Um, but I think as an industry, we had our eggs 
in this beautiful basket surrounded by fur and cotton wool and bubble wrap and it was they were all very safe the way we do things is very safe we're risk averse that by the nature of what we do it's a very obviously safety critical industry so people tend to behave in a very risk averse way what covid has done is is taken that basket and just thrown it on the floor up in the air whatever the eggs are smashed we need to make something different mm. and it's an opportunity to do that and if 12 months ago somebody had said to the people in the operating railway that we're going to just take your customers away for a bit we'll we'll don't worry about your revenue and your cost but we want you just to think about starting again if we we're going to start the railway again what would you do differently so my god what an amazing opportunity that would be obviously yeah. it hasn't happened in that context but nonetheless it's still an opportunity to do something different i completely agree i think your three well, wishes are fantastic you, 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 you're, you're very right and i think we've got to sometimes we look at this from a kind of you know railways in or railways out perspective you know so you've asked me three wishes I, as someone that has worked in rail i'm thinking this is what rail needs to do mm. i think we've also got to look at it from an outside in view as well because what does the country need from the railway you know if you think about the sustainability point so affordability and modernizing and, and, and you know making sure that this is fit for the future is, is critical but the sustainability role that rail has to play is really crucial and and as we're heading you know trying to get to net zero by 2050 you know rail will have to be a big part of that and if we rebuild back now post pandemic with a car-led recovery because we haven't made people feel confident and safe to use the rail network or we've not adapted the product to suit them better for their needs um, and we miss that and we push them back into their cars or into other modes mm. um, well that that that's that's letting the country down because that will mean that that we'll have not only a, a, you know be choking our cities in a much greater way uh, from an air quality perspective but it's not sustainable it's just not sustainable in terms of the economic value uh, the productivity value and all of the other benefits that rail can offer so so there's a real obligation here i think on all parties yeah. to make sure the railway does its bit not yeah. just next year but for the next 20 years there's an obligation as well as an opportunity i like that one Absolutely. Like that. thank you chris um and so as we've we've mentioned a few times clearly um we've been through an interesting period of time um i'd love to know what you've learnt when we look back over the the last seven months of being kind of everything thrown up in the air and everything being different from a professional and a personal perspective how are you different what have you learned and what what are you doing differently good question i mean yeah interesting is the most understated <laughs> absolutely yeah that term you could possibly have spoken <laughs> english um I, I mean look we talked about it previously i think the, the, the thing that learned or been reminded of is just how we can come together effectively to manage these challenging times you know it's governments it's businesses it's trade unions it's everybody um where there's a common objective and it reminds me and the thing i've learned is that actually most of the time we do have a common objective government has a common objective with 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 operators with network rail with unions we want the railway to be a success and to be contributing to the country um, it's only when you get into the sort of tiny detail that sometimes those interests vary or point in the wrong directions. And that's back to the point about system, really. You've got to look at it as a system and make sure we're pointing in the same direction. Because mm -hmm. ultimately, we actually all want and need the railway to be a success. 
So, so that sort of goal alignment piece, you know, when we are aligned short term and long term, we can achieve amazing things together. And I think that that is the opportunity going forward. How do you get that goal alignment in the short term and the long term vision for rail that is modern, future proofed, innovative, progressive, uh, that isn't threatening to the unions, isn't threatening to people, has opportunity around better skills, better jobs, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's, that's the key learning for me. And it's about how, how to harness that really in the next few months as we still continue to navigate the crisis. I think um, from a personal basis, uh, you know, in common with many other people, I think uh, my eyes have been opened around different work-life balance. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and actually the opportunity to have a different balance you know, from a work-life perspective has been really, in, really um, educational in terms of helping to manage one's own energy, actually. Um, it, it was quite strange, you know, getting to the end of the week and not being completely exhausted and falling asleep by nine o'clock. <laughs> yeah, just as my wife is going, come on, let's get out, it's Friday, let's go out, let's go out to the pub. And I'm like, oh, I'm exhausted, I just want to laugh. Um, yeah. not, not being in that state was, was really quite, you know, quite amazing. Um, and so I've enjoyed that. And, but isn't this, isn't this the worry for us? Isn't this what we have to tackle? Because, you know, I would personally say as an, a real rail advocate, I've enjoyed being around at home more. I've enjoyed spending more time with my kids. I've been enjoying helping homework, um, having discussion, having dinner. I've never eat the eat with them in, in the week, you know, the family. Been able to do a bit more exercise. So all of that is is much more healthy for your, you know, yourself in a kind of balanced way, in a, a mental well-being way. But it all trades from not having that commute. Yeah. And that's the point, isn't it? That's the worry. And if I'm thinking that and thinking, oh, I don't mind not commuting. Um, mm-hmm then we have a real challenge to get people back. I have, I've really missed, I've missed work. I've missed mm. seeing people. I've missed the collaboration you get and the banter you get and the side conversations you get from meetings and the fact you can read people's body language much better than you can using technology. I mean, Teams, Zoom, brilliant, mm. but it's not the same. Um, and I have really missed all of that, but I haven't missed the commute. And I think that's where a number of people's heads will be. And it's, it's how we tackle that challenge going forward to make sure yeah. that rail still has a role to play completely agree i think <clears throat> my own view on that is that the pendulum has not stopped swinging it is still moving in relation to the remote working working from home uh, many people i'm speaking to are in a position where they um they don't want to work from home full time they are missing the social interaction everything that you've just said missing being out of the house and we've got people as well, obviously, who are living on their own. So that not not having any work interaction, being really limited in terms of what you can do socially and therefore being stuck in the same four walls. Um, so my, my prediction is that the pendulum will start to swing back. But I do think that railway needs to, as, as I know is happening in a lot of places already, needs to look at the leisure market and how we make ourselves more attractive to people who are traveling, not from a commuting perspective, but to do in their leisure activities. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, lots lots to do and lots of opportunities. Um, As we've gone through this conversation, Chris, you have mentioned um, a few names uh, in relation to people you've worked with and people you've learned from. Um, Just as we bring our conversation to to a close, I'm really interested to hear who's influenced you? Where do you 
whose leadership skills have you uh, and you don't have to name names you can talk about what you know what you've learned who what you've been inspired by what motivates you and, and gives you the energy to then do what you do with your teams as a leader mm. Mm. so uh i think uh, there's a number of people um to talk about influences certainly and they're not all people i've worked for actually there's there's other external influences as well um but i think i learned most uh leadership style you know different leadership style um when i worked with keith ludeman who was chief executive of the go-ahead group for a period of time now still very active in the non-exec world um uh but he was he was chief exec of go-ahead uh running the sort of thames trains uh south central and southeastern franchises and then uh, west midlands for a bit um he he just had a different approach and it was interesting because when you i think when you first start work you kind of you're taught how things work in that organization and almost you kind of think well that's what i know and that's what i that's how things are and perhaps you don't appreciate that different organizations do things in different ways different leaders do things in different ways and keith was just very different and he the way he assessed his teams and the way he assessed uh his recruitment was was quite different it was very much looking at things like uh you know individual motivations what why why would this person you know be motivated to do a good job how does that fit with the rest of the team uh he was very very engaging very very motivating his manner of giving objectives was very broad gave you lots of space to work um not hundreds and millions of of, of kpis and and tests because that you you've got no chance of ever hitting all of them it was very broad uh, which i really appreciated because that actually gave you a lot of um a lot of autonomy in a way but you, but it wasn't because he would always keep a close check on you in terms of what you were doing so um he was always there and he was always incredibly fair and i remember um mike hodson who used to run uh, london midland uh, for a time um he was also my md at thames trains as well but I was sort of saying to mike you know um what's Keith like to work for? And he said, you know, he, he, you don't ever need to sort of go to Keith and, and ask for things. He'll, he will look after you and he'll be there for you. And it'll be when you least realize it. And it's absolutely true. You know, you, there was times I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm working flipping hard here. I've done a really good job. And, and, you know, and then Keith would literally call you the next week and go, I think you've done a brilliant job, you know, uh, his little increment and his little challenge for you and uh it was amazing you know really really smart management really and created a huge amount of loyalty uh, actually amongst his, his team um i've worked for many other great people i'm not saying no no one else is any, but, no, no, uh, but keith, clearly keith stands out look at looking at keith and how do i take some of that into what i do um the other big influences i've had uh there was a moment when um I thought how to manage was very much command and control. Lots of data, lots of targets, uh, give people tons of objectives, really manage them hard, and that was the way to achieve performance. And you can get performance done in that way. Um, but I saw I was t I saw an, an, an advert um, again early on in my sort of southern career uh, for uh, a conference, and the conference was called Freedom from Command and Control. Okay. I thought that's quite, that sounds quite exciting in terms of management philosophy and so forth. Um, so I went to go and see this. I was given permission to go to go to this conference, and it, I tell you, it blew my mind. It just completely blew my mind. You know, sometimes you just these life changing events. It was just a one day conference. Not, yeah. Um, but it's this guy by this guy called John Seddon, um, and he he looked at how to effectively implement systems thinking into service industries, uh, and he totally changed 
you know, he was very anti-targets. You know, he says targets drive, you know, abusive behavior. They drive people focusing on just the target rather than the system output. Uh, and it gets quite technical at times. But but when you think about it, you kind of think, actually, most of what we do is wrong. <laughs> and you can't change it in terms yeah. of, because it's just so institutionalized. Yeah. Um, but actually, if you're really trying to improve outputs, you need to take a much more production line focus in the way that Toyota do for, for production, but try yeah. and apply that to a service industry. And that that really did transform you know, the way I thought about how you manage and how you help people and how you should lead. Um, and the fact that, you know, you should have this upside down triangle that people talk about, that, you know, the, our frontline teams are the people that we are serving as managers. We're not telling them what to do. We're trying to help them do the job better. And, and once you get your head around that kind of philosophical shift, it really does change the way you want to manage and lead. Uh, so I'd recommend that to people. It is in a book if people want to read it. I was it. just going to ask you that, Chris, actually. I'll, I'll be Googling that later. So John Seddon. John is Seddon, the, yeah. Is the, the mastermind behind it. He's published a book called Freedom from Command and Control. It's quite old now, I think, probably. But um, uh, it did change to change my, my thinking completely. Um, uh, can I have one other? I'll, I'll you mention, can, of course I'll you can, yeah. Called, I don't, you may need to know them. Uh, do you know Mike Finnegan? I do. Yeah, because yeah. Mike Finnegan's from my part of the world, isn't he? If yeah. we're talking about the same Mike Finnegan, yeah. from he is, he is, yeah. He is. Yeah. And, and I spent a bit of time working with Mike um, a couple of years ago. Oh wow! Uh, which was again really eye-opening. Um, yeah. And uh, that the thing that I learned from Mike, which is you know what he is brilliant at, is is teaching you that you are in complete control of how you feel and your attitude all the time. No matter what happens, you are in complete control of it. And you can effectively set out to achieve anything if you put your mind to it and you have the right mental approach. Um, and in managing dark moments, and I've had a couple of dark <laughs> moments in the last yeah. couple of years, yeah. uh, that was really, really vital. Um, yeah. And helps with resilience, helps with mental strength, helps with getting you through trauma uh, and crisis. But also in the good times as well, because it keeps you grounded. So, um, what a superstar Mike is! Really excellent. Yeah, I agree. It's some time since I uh, since I saw him actually. So you've put him back in my head. I shall have to uh, reach out. Um, and I love that. That is definitely my philosophy as well. I think I talk a lot actually to my teenage daughter at the moment about this. Um, whatever happens, whatever situation you're in, and what, whatever other people are saying or doing or what's going on in the world, ultimately we have a choice on how we respond to that. Mm -hmm. And you can either respond negatively or positively. And, and that is actually always your responsibility. It's always your choice. Um, so I'm fully on board with that philosophy. Sometimes it feels a bit hard and sometimes it feels a bit like I don't want to choose. Don't make me choose because it's just too difficult. But ultimately, yeah, we are all in charge of our own destiny, um, even though sometimes that feels like a bit of a, a, bit of a tough task. Um, a quote, please. A favourite quote in terms of something that you might turn to something that inspires you something that's made you think um, and i'm sure that there will be lots of them but i'm curious to know if there's one that you can share with us today um, just to kind of uh, bring our conversation to a close yeah uh, so i have got one and, and i can't the trouble with this quote is it's a brilliant quote but it but i can't attribute it with any accuracy okay <laughs> <laughs> um, it was uh, i heard it first from um, Charles Horton when he was MD of Southern 
and he quoted it and he attributed it to uh, one of the BRB chairmen. I think it was Peter Parker. Um, but I don't know if it's true or not. And I've Googled it incessantly for many, many, you know, many times trying to see if there is any kind of provenance or any kind of, you know, support for this. But it, but it, it comes to mind whenever, and it's so apt for the railway, it's perfect for the railway because, you know, when, even if it's a short-term incident, you know, or, or, or long-term crisis, this quote always just sorts you out. And uh, it goes, Charles said, you know, if you're in a hole, and when we were in a hole in Southern, he said, you can't pull up your socks whilst you're wringing your hands. <laughs> oh, I, love I love it. I love it. So, you know, stop, stop worrying about all that. Stop getting all anxious about yeah. how it all is. Pull up your socks and get on with it. Fantastic. I love that. What a brilliant quote. Um, I definitely am going to use that one, most definitely. And I will attribute it to you via whoever came up with it in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> well, the provenance of it and if you can confirm whether it's peter parker or not then that would be great well we'll put it out there and hopefully somebody who's watching the podcast might know because they will be many of our railway family colleagues who will be tuning in chris it's been an absolute pleasure every conversation i've ever had with you um always is interesting i always learn something i've learned loads this morning um and i'm really grateful to you for giving up some of your time in between roles to talk to me on intuitive insights podcast um, i will be watching with interest to see how successful and it's so hugely successful in your new role um, and uh, and as you know i've got a tenor on you coming back into the rail industry so i'll look forward to that <laughs> <laughs> take care chris thanks ever so much, so much Nina. thanks for the invitation i really enjoyed it take care my huge thanks to chris for sharing his thoughts on the latest episode of Intuitive Insights. The next episode will be with you in two weeks time when I'm joined by Louise Cheeseman, MD of Hull Trains and the person who is adamant that she wasn't the one who delivered the Olympics. We'll see you then.